Hello, you're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Nikki Stott. I want to pay my respects to country and to all the others, past and present, who've been part of the struggle for so long now for sovereignty and self-determination. This week on Earth Matters, we'll hear part one of a two-part series called False Promises and Real Solutions, featuring a bunch of anti-geoengineering activists speaking at a webinar last month that was organised by the COP26 Coalition. Sarah Shaw from Friends of the Earth International and Gopal Dianani and Tom Wakeford from ETC Group get back to basics with everything you wanted to know about geoengineering but were too afraid to ask. What is it? Where did it come from? Why is it here? Why does it totally suck? And what can we do about it? So going to say a tiny bit about how this false solution, this idea of geoengineering came about. And it was a good 30 years ago that this term started to be used. I actually remember it. I was a, a ecology student and the word was used, but nobody really took it seriously. And basically, Gopal's going to define it much uh, more in much more detail than I am. But geoengineering is basically the idea that you can control the climate in the same way as you can mend a bike or fix your car. And the big shift happened a couple of years ago when the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change made scenarios about how we'd keep below 1.5 degrees C. And all of the scenarios they came up with relied on some element of geoengineering. So basically the way governments are looking at things, the way that lots of businesses, even some non-governmental organizations are looking at things, is that geoengineering is something we're going to have to rely on. But uh, you're going to hear a rich critique of that. You're also going to hear from Sarah uh, about some of the other muddled thinking that leads us down the path of geoengineering, terms like net zero. And of course, geoengineering often comes under alternative names that maybe sound a bit more acceptable, a bit more uh, easy to swallow, like carbon capture, like who could be against something nice called carbon capture. And then finally, we're going to come to Dipti who's going to look at the real solutions as opposed to the false ones. So we'll go straight to Gopal. Welcome. This is a quick presentation that we put together between ETC Group, the Climate Justice Alliance based in in Turtle Island in um, North America, and the Hands Off Mother Earth campaign, which is an international campaign of dozens of organizations around the world fighting against geoengineering. When we first started talking about geoengineering, it was this idea of these completely sci-fi sort of ridiculous proposals that nobody took too seriously. That was worrisome and on, that people were talking about it, but it didn't seem real. And we are now in a period where real world experiments are both being proposed and moving forward to test geoengineering schemes. Geoengineering refers to a set of proposed technologies to deliberately intervene in and alter Earth's systems on a mega scale. 
It is a desperate, potentially catastrophic set of proposals to manipulate the climate in an attempt to roll back some of the effects of climate change while avoiding the root causes. Deliberate, mega scale, and desperate. By deliberate, we mean we are talking about purposefully messing with the way Earth's natural geophysical, geochemical cycles function. The goal is to extend fossil fuel extraction and consumption by hiding or displacing the effect. Oftentimes, pro-geoengineering folks will say, well, we're already geoengineering the planet with fossil fuels, by burning fossil fuels. But that's an externality of something that we now know is terribly wrong, as opposed to deliberately trying to mess with the life support systems of the planet. Megascale refers to the idea that that geoengineering is about changing the way the entire planet functions, which means these are deployed at a massive scale. And whatever impacts happen now or in the future, we can't reliably predict or test them. The only way to find out what will happen at, on the planetary scale over long periods of time is to actually try it and see what happens. People who promote geoengineering will argue that the scale, the pace, and the impacts of climate disruption demand that we resort to these kinds of far-fetched, expensive, unproven, and untestable measures because we're running out of time to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So generally, the argument is this is a desperate move on our part to buy us some time. They argue that we don't want to do it, but we might just have to to save the planet. And I would argue that... They don't want to do it, but they might just have to to save business as usual. What they are actually desperately worried about is not climate disruption, but the impact of climate disruption on the existing extractive economic models from which most of them have benefited. If you work on climate and you notice that something is being funded by BP, Shell, Peabody Coal, Chevron, Murray Edwards, who's the tar sands tycoon from Canada, or Bill Gates, who's just generally an asshole, or the U.S. military, DARPA, then you probably can assume it's a false solution. And these are actually the backers of geoengineering schemes and proposals. Geoengineering, they often will say, well, it's really hard to define, and we would say, no, it's trying to disturb planetary systems on land, sea, or air. These are the kind of different ways in which geoengineering generally happens. Stratospheric aerosol injection is a form of solar radiation management. Solar radiation management, trying to impact how much solar radiation reaches the planet. Carbon dioxide removal, which is about the idea that we can directly suck carbon out of the atmosphere or increase the capacity of the planet to sink a carbon or earth radiation management, which is instead of trying to keep solar radiation from warming the earth, change the way the planet responds to solar radiation to cool the earth. There are a few geoengineering schemes that we've been focusing on in particular. One that happened, an illegal ocean iron fertilization dumping scheme in the Haida Nation off the coast of British Columbia, the stratospheric controlled perturbation experiment coming out of Harvard 
and something called the Arctic Ice Project that used to be called Ice 911 in the circumpolar region of, in the Arctic. This is from the PIDA ocean iron fertilization. And the idea is that you can dump iron filings in the ocean. They argued that it will both increase the phytoplankton biomass, which then will absorb carbon, but also bring in increased salmon fisheries. So it was pitched to the Haida Nation as a salmon restoration project. And this guy, George Rush, did this experiment. And um, it's illegal. There's a moratorium on real-world experiments under the Convention on Biological Diversity. But he did it, and he was not prosecuted, so he managed to get away with it. His outfit has now reformed itself and is part of a company called Oceanos, which is trying to do the same thing again in Chile. And again, pitching it to fisher folk as a, a fisheries restoration project. Scopex is this guy, David Keith. Scopex is the idea that you basically reproduce a volcanic eruption on a planetary scale in order to block some of the sun's radiation from hitting the earth. For those of us who have just been living through the wildfires, that's what you can kind of imagine it feeling like, stratospheric particulates that are then designed to block radiation. They tried to do it in Tucson, Arizona, but were stopped by community organizing and opposition. They're still looking for a place to do it. ICE 911 or the Arctic Ice Project imagines dumping microbeads of glass all over the Arctic and Greenland in order to increase the reflectivity of the Arctic to slow the melting of the Arctic. As we know, we're rapidly losing summer ice in the Arctic. And this is led by Leslie Fields out of Stanford. Again, the idea here is that you're going to just dump this novel material in the oceans and on the ice and hope that it has some cooling impact. So I want to just say a little bit about why we think we should oppose geoengineering. The obvious thing is it doesn't address the root cause of the climate crisis, which quite frankly is not greenhouse gas emissions. It's actually the exploitation of land and labor, economic inequality, environmental injustice, the drive for unlimited economic growth. In fact, the whole notion that climate change is about atmospheric concentrations of CO2 is in itself a false solution or a false understanding of what's actually happening. That's the emergent consequence of what the real problem is, which is the screwing up of ecosystems and communities on the ground everywhere at once. And the emergent consequence of that, an economic system based on the exploitation of land and labor and living systems, is a planetary scale systems disruption. So the five reasons we would argue that you have to oppose geoengineering are that it's untestable, unstoppable, ungovernable, undemocratic, and unnecessary. It's untestable and unstoppable because of what we talked about before, this idea that the one thing you cannot test for are the consequences of deploying something at a planetary scale. The only way to find out what happens at the planetary scale over time is to try it and then see what happens. And at that point, it can easily be too late to do anything about it. And by their own admission, geoengineers talk about, for example, 
when it comes to stratospheric aerosol injection or other forms of solar radiation management, they themselves admit that there's this problem of termination shock, which is the idea that once you deploy these technologies, you have to keep them going until you figure out a strategy to actually deal with the root causes. Otherwise, you end up with termination shock. If you shut them down, uh, temperatures rise more rapidly, more severely than they would have if you had done nothing. So it's ungovernable and undemocratic. Many of these technologies have to be deployed and maintained continuously for dozens, if not a hundred years. And the idea that we will imagine a stable governance regime internationally for a planetary scale intervention over a hundred years seems absurd to almost anyone. And it's deeply undemocratic because it, by definition, cannot comply with free prior and informed consent, the right to know and the right to say no of communities potentially impacted by such experiments and or actual deployment of technologies. And finally, I'll say that it's entirely and utterly unnecessary because we know what we need to do. We need to tackle the climate crisis. We don't need to have desperate, expensive, unproven technologies to try and maintain the status quo. We need to actually engage in the challenging work of reorganizing the very nature of our economy towards energy democracy, soil restoration, zero waste, ecosystems protection, human rights, indigenous sovereignty, equity, and of course, we need to keep the fossil fuels in the ground. And there's all kinds of great ways to get involved and things that we can do. I'll just point folks to the Hands Off Mother Earth campaign, handsoffmotherearth.org, and Geoengineering Monitor. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Next, I'll hand over to Sarah from Friends of the Earth International. So the pursuit of false solutions is not a new thing. I think that's clear that for decades, rich countries and big polluters have been looking for an escape hatch to try and avoid doing the work of transformation, of actually reducing emissions, of leaving fossil fuels in the ground and getting finance to the global south to enable development and energy transformation there. And I think this has taken many shapes over the years, but the intent is generally the same. It's to allow business as usual for emissions to continue either under the guise of market solutions like carbon markets and offsets, so paying other people to allegedly reduce emissions elsewhere, techno fixes like geoengineering that we've just heard about, and sort of substituting. So things like reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation, nature-based solutions, so planting trees instead of leading fossil fuels in the ground. And these strategies have the effect of distracting attention from the urgent need to eliminate fossil fuel emissions and to transform systems, Um, obscuring the responsibility of corporates and elites for their carbon emissions and the responsibility of governments to regulate them. It leads to further financialization of nature, reducing the diversity of the planet's forests, grasslands and wetlands to carbon to be traded. And of course, it has massive impacts on the communities, particularly in the global south, because of the need for vast amounts of land. So recently, quite a lot of these false solutions have entered the climate debate by the idea of net zero. 
So net zero has been around for a while, but it was formalised a lot more in the Paris Agreement. And it's now very prevalent in government targets and proposed targets, particularly in the global north. So theoretically, you achieve net zero when there's a balance between your sources of greenhouse gas emissions and the sinks that absorb them. But there is a huge difference between whether you're looking at one or 10 or 100 tonnes of CO2 or 1,000 or a gigaton. Or So there's a big difference in the scale of the overshoot and the scale of the negative emissions to get to net zero. And we're talking about a huge amount. If you look at most of the IPC scenarios, they're suggesting there needs to be a huge amount which we would dispute. But we must distinguish as well between the carbon that cycles through active pools, the atmosphere, ocean and land, and carbon that's released in the geologic pool or fossil carbon. These aren't the same. So burning historical coal from the ground is really different from planting a tree. And we see that net zero is being used by a lot of polluting governments and corporations to evade responsibility, shift burdens, disguise climate inaction, and in some cases to even scale up fossil fuel extraction. So there are these pledges with a deep sort of distant date that require no action for decades and the promise of these technologies that are unlikely to work at scale and which are hugely dangerous and harmful. Many of these net zero targets assume these vast tree plantations in the global south or some of the technologies that Gopal has just talked about now. Net zero targets can therefore hide deep inequity and injustice. Corporations, northern countries and elites plan to continue to burn fossil fuels well, assuming that the forests and land in the global south will soak up the emissions and that frontline communities, women and young people will pay the cost with their livelihoods and even lives. So some of the false solutions that we see particularly, we see rich countries using carbon markets and offsets to balance their emissions. I think perhaps the most glaringly obvious reason not to pursue carbon markets is the fact that they don't work. We've seen global emissions continue to rise over the last 10, 20, 30 years. And carbon prices have remained ridiculously low as governments have auctioned quotas cheaply to appeal to the fossil fuel industry. And offsets are the worst form of markets. You know, one entity burns fossil fuels, they emit CO2, they pay someone else to plant trees and they use some kind of means of estimating how much carbon they're going to take up. We don't know what will happen to those trees in the future. It's been an extremely ineffective and dangerous method. Indigenous peoples and local communities have long resisted these carbon offsetting schemes as forms of climate colonialism. Such schemes have they've led to conflict, they've led to corporate abuse, forced relocation, threats of cultural genocide. So these communities are really leading the resistance to carbon markets. I think perhaps the most infamous among these schemes is RED, reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation. It's an offsetting scheme that ostensibly compensates governments, companies and forest dwellers in the global south for leaving forests intact. But unfortunately, this mechanism has led to large scale and violent evictions in the name of conservation, corporate land grabs, making way for monoculture plantations and even a new form of carbon slavery where individuals and their families have been contractually bound to manage forests for decades without compensation. And I think as with many market mechanisms, you know, red is fraught with loopholes leading to manipulation and corruption and exploitation. So for a long time, energy and mining companies and other energy intensive industries have lobbied hard for the expansion of carbon markets on the world stage. So big fossil fuel companies such as Shell have included offsetting as a major part of their strategy. They want to secure carbon markets in the Paris rule book under the UNFCCC negotiations in the same way that they've boasted of helping to shape the Paris agreement in the first place because it buys more time to profit, to continue extraction whilst ostensibly offsetting. So Mark Carney, currently the UN Special Envoy on Climate 
Action and Finance and the UK Prime Minister's Finance Advisor for COP26 says that we can't get to net zero emissions without robust voluntary carbon offset markets. And he's heading a task force on scaling up these voluntary markets, even if the negotiations at the UNFCCC don't reach agreement, which we managed to block them from doing last year. So the private sector is really well aware of the value of offsets for meeting its net zero pledges. Any oil company, any um, puts its net zero and offsetting claims right next to its intentions to carry on with business as usual. They said they will continue to increase oil and gas production by three and a half percent a year until 2025 and then reduce their carbon footprint by 80 percent by 2050 using 30 million tonnes a year of carbon offsets from primary and secondary forest conservation projects. So it allows for greenwash as well. Net zero can also open the door to nature-based solutions, which can also be an offset mechanism and a carbon trading thing. A lot of these areas overlap. So nature-based solutions and natural climate solutions are being talked about quite widely right now. And they they sound pretty nice, right? Um, I mean, who wouldn't want to rewild and plant trees? Um, And it is a complicated area because there aren't very clear definitions. And there's therefore not a full understanding of what people mean when they're using the term nature-based solutions. Friends of Earth International, you know, we support ecosystem restoration and reforestation, restoring forests, working with communities in a way that respects the lives and livelihoods of those communities um, living on the land. That's a good thing. That's an important thing. But I think what's clear is that that's not necessarily what others mean when they use the term nature-based solution. And of course, this cannot be instead of reducing emissions at source. Terrestrial sinks sequester carbon, but it doesn't compensate for the release of fossil fuels when Reduce the CO2 when fossil fuels are burnt. And there is a common thread here. <laughs> you know, some of the proponents of nature-based solutions are the usual suspects. Shell, Eni, Total, BP, Chevron and others came together for a special event on carbon markets at the COP last year, supported by a few large conservation NGOs. Northern governments are also pretty keen. Some suggestions for nature-based solutions look very much like a repackaged version of RED, so mass plantation-style tree planting in the global south. And of course, there's a threat of um, increased industrial agriculture, because as you use land for nature based solutions, you have less land on which to grow food. And that leads to an intensification, which is carries all sorts of serious issues and risks. You only need to look at BP Rochelle's website or nature based solutions to understand the strategy of sort of distraction and seduction. They're clearly intent on continuing to explore, extract and sell fossil fuels. But by focusing attention on programmes to include forest offsets, well, with the petrol they sell to consumers, using photos of forests and communities to support the preservation of biodiverse ecosystems, they're distracting from that core intent. It's greenwashing. When oil companies are wanting to expand and they are advocating for nature-based solutions and wanting them as tradable assets on top of that, I think we need to be very concerned about what this means and look at who stands to gain. There's also bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, which is a geoengineering technique. It's a method of growing crops, burning them to generate electricity, capturing it, pumping it into underground reservoirs and storing it. Not tested at scale, not very desirable at all. And it's it's estimated that the deployment of BECs at large scale could require up to 300,000 million hectares of land. So twice the world's currently cultivated land. That's um, mainly going to be in the global south. And therefore, it once again perpetuates sort of global injustices, whose land and whose forests are going to be affected here. And there are huge issues of risk and feasibility and adverse impacts, some of which were highlighted earlier. 
what many of these approaches have in common is the requirement for huge amounts of land for new tree plantations. And these are likely to lead to conflicts over food and water and ecosystems and livelihoods. So some proponents envisage hundreds of millions or even billions of hectares of lands being allocated to bioenergy or carbon offset tree plantations. And there isn't enough land available on the planet to accommodate all of these combined corporate and government net zero plans. Rural farming and indigenous communities in the global south are likely to be pushed off their land. And so we're likely to see landlessness, hunger and food price rises that will affect disproportionately those who've done the least to cause the climate crisis. So further confounding those deep injustices. And it is tempting to say we're in emergency and we need to use every tool in the box. But these tools, so-called tools, cause huge harm to communities and they are a distraction from the real solutions. We need to reduce fossil fuels at sources urgently. We need system change and transformation. We need large scale finance flowing from the north to the south to finance an energy revolution. Investing in these things is a distraction from actually tackling the problem at source. And I just wanted to flag a few publications before I finish. So Carbon Markets, one from last year that still has some stuff in it. We have a forthcoming publication around bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. And we have a joint briefing around some of the concerns around net zero targets with some other organisations there. And we can share links and things in the Slack to all of these things afterwards. And we also have some other forthcoming publications around these areas as well. Um, So look out for those. But I, I will stop there. Thank you. You've been listening to False Promises and Real Solutions on Earth Matters with Sarah Shaw from Friends of the Earth International at foei.org and Gopal Dianani and Tom Wakeford from ETC Group at etcgroup.org. Tune in next month for part two of this two-part series where Dipti Patnagar from Friends of the Earth International will elaborate on what the alternative and real solutions are to the false solution of geoengineering, which is really only good for one thing, and that would be greenwashing the neoliberal agenda. And you can find our Earth Matters podcast at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. And if you're listening via a podcasting service, we'd love you to subscribe. And why not rate us and give us a review to help spread the word? Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous support and the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in getting this show out to you. Earth Matters is produced with the support of 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy, Nam. And we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. And you can also find us on your socials. That's all for this week, so tune in next week for more environmental and social justice stories. The car is on fire, and there's no driver at the wheel. And the sewers are all muddied with a thousand lonely suicides. And a dark wind blows. government is corrupt, and we're on so many drugs with the radio on and the curtains drawn. We're trapped in the belly of this horrible machine, and the
machine is bleeding to death. The sun has fallen down, and the billboards are all leering, and the flags are all dead at the top of their poles. It went like this. The buildings toppled in on themselves. Mothers clutching babies picked through the rubble and pulled out their hair. The skyline was beautiful on fire. All twisted metal stretching upwards. Everything washed in a thin orange haze. I said, kiss me, you're beautiful. These are truly the last days. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. 855 AM. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a Food Not Bombs fly on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.